How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Blondes, brunettes, redheads, silver foxes, chrome domes, and half people. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Um, that was hair-raising. Uh, what a great introduction. You know, it's, um, it's, it's lovely the way you, you make this your own every time. It's unique. It's wonderful. Thank you. Just like, just like people. Just like people. That's like that, like that bumper sticker. Remember, you're unique, just like everyone else. It's one of my favorites from a while ago. So how's the week been for you, Tom? It's been an okay week, Dr. Joe. Uh, you know, things are harrowing out there, but, you know, we get by day by day. I've been talking a lot about Dune on and off the show. I just finished the book God Emperor of Dune, hmm. which is probably the heaviest one so far. And I, I got to ask you, you read the books. Was it before you came up with the I Am approach? Because there's so much to tie in. You know, it's very interesting. It was, um, I read them in college. So more or less around the same time as coming up with the I Am. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the, the, I've been influenced by a lot, a lot, a lot of, writings and amazing authors and scientific and psychological theories. So, but what reminded you of, of the I am and Dune? Well, Dune centers a lot around the future, not just tomorrow or a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now. It's what, what is our ultimate destiny or do we have one? Mm -hmm. And God Emperor of Dune, not to spoil anything, and centers around the question when or if will humanity go extinct and mm -hmm. so the central character leto atreides the second comes up with a golden path for humanity where we're so confined and isolated and rendered completely powerless for millennia so that when leto finally dies due to circumstances in the sci-fi world he lives a very long time that humanity will never turn in on itself that it will expand outward and completely change forever and keep changing and never die as a species well it's it's an incredible wish and dream it's a, hopefully it's more than science fiction and there is you know some synchronicity to it in many ways which leads us directly to our guest for tonight. So, Tom, could you please introduce our guest for the Dr. Joe Show? Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight, we've got the creator and host of the podcast Shrink Rap Radio, which is in its 16th year with enthusiastic listeners in more than 200 countries. Known to his listeners as Dr. Dave, he earned his doctorate in clinical psychology at the University of Michigan and is now Professor Emeritus at Sonoma State University, where he taught for 35 years. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show, Dr. David Van Nuys. Thank you very much. What a privilege. I'm very it happy is, to be here. It is wonderful to have you here, Dr. David. I mean, uh, just so people know, Dr. David and I were chatting a few weeks ago when I was honored to be a guest on his podcast. Oh, and I said, please, 
you have interviewed so many people. When do you get to tell your story? Come on the Dr. Joe show and tell us your story. So we are truly, truly honored to have you here. One of, truly one of the pioneers and leaders in podcasting in the world. So thanks for oh, being thank here. You. I, I'm honored to be here. And uh, I remember that uh, you were telling me your story, your very fascinating story, which uh, part, a big part of was your career as a child actor. And in some ways, I think that's kind of really shaped quite a bit of your future and destiny. Um, I don't know if you agree or not, but I could highlight some points. Uh, but you mentioned Zoom, and I thought, wow. And here we are on Zoom, which mm -hmm. had not been invented yet. Nobody had even thought of Zoom, unless maybe in a Dick Tracy comic strip or something, you right. know, that people would be able to communicate remotely this way. And so I thought, well, that's kind of synchronistic, you know, mm -hmm. the uh, definition, Jung's definition of synchronicity is, um, uh, now I'm going to block on it, uh, an a-causal link between events, uh, yeah. meaningful. Uh, uh, so in other words, events that appear to be very meaningfully related, but we can't say A caused B or B caused A. Right. And um, I think there have been a fair amount of those in, in your life. And, and to me, just that correspondence could be seen as kind of a synchronicity. In my life, in my life I've had a long series of synchronicities uh, that kind of blow my mind because I've, I was trained, uh, just like you were, uh, in science. And by and large, I subscribe to, to science. And yet I am persuaded that that's not the whole story, that there's something bigger going on. I don't have a big theory about what that, what that is, what, what causes it to happen. I just see it in my life. And I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. Yeah, I look forward to it. And I, I absolutely agree. The more I learn about science and medicine, the more I'm convinced that there is something else. There is something that connects us. I was talking with a colleague today about her newborn infant. And, you know, newborns don't realize that they are individual until much later in their life. You know, yeah. initially, they just think they're part of everything. And that's the connection that I believe we have. That's what we're born with. So I would be... In many ways, we're trying to get back there, right? I that think so. experience of unified consciousness, yes. undifferentiated without judgments about it. That's right. That, that sort of sounds like the, how people describe Satori or enlightenment. Mm, yeah, yeah. So let's, let's, let, let me hear about your background. You're right. The theater absolutely had a huge influence on me. What about you, Dr. David? What were your early childhood influences? Well, um, let me tell you about my, my family, my childhood family, because that's an important part of the story. I was born into a racially mixed family. Uh, my mother, when uh, I guess when I was still a baby, maybe right around the time I, after I was born or something, uh, she was separated from her husband. Uh, she met an African-American man, and he was my, my dad my, uh, for all my growing up. He was my dad. Called him daddy. And yet there was a difference 
between us, not only just in the, the, the racial difference, the color of skin, but he was a manual laborer, hard, heavy labor, a really massively strong guy. And here's this skinny little intellectually oriented verbal kid. And so there was a bit of a gap there. And it set me off on a quest. Maybe it's kind of a mythic, mythic quest in a way. The search for the father, the search for the real mm-hmm. father. So I wanted to find, I was curious to find my real biological father. Who was he, etc. And um, there was a lot of confusing cues going on during my, my growing up. Uh, uh, we lived in an African-American uh, neighborhood much of the time, but we also then lived for a while on the Sunset Strip. I went to, to school in Hollywood for a while. Uh, my grandmother on the other side of town was an evangelist and had led tent meetings around the country, uh, divine healing, all of that stuff. So a lot of very interesting influences in my early life. When I was about 14 years of age, uh, my mother kind of sat me down and said, okay, well, let me tell you the story, how things are here. Because I knew that, you know, I, I at some point I realized that, okay, he's my stepdad, not my biological father. When I was growing up, my, my uh, black playmate says, hey, man, what are you? And I say, well, I'm half, ch- half white milk, half chocolate milk. Yeah. At some point I outgrew that metaphor. But, you know, it was clear that there was something going on. So my mother sits me down and she tells me that um, when she was younger, she met a very charismatic Jewish man who was a writer and, um, and a communist, as a matter of fact. And um, so right when the Jewish thing got me, I was prepared to be black. You know, so, so this is your real father. You're half white, half black. I have a, a, a mixed blood sister, as a matter of fact. And I was prepared to be that. I was not prepared to be Jewish because people would look at me often and say, what are, you, are you Jewish? And just the way they would say it, it there was, I had a strong feeling that yes was the wrong answer, that it would be a lot better to be able to say no. And because I had no cultural support to be Jewish, I, I had a lot of cultural support to be black. I had black relatives, et cetera, on and on. So when my mother shared that information with me, I vowed, I made an internal vow. I'm never going to tell my children this. If I ever have children, I'm not going to tell them because I'm aware at that point, I was born in 1940. So I'm aware that thousands, that millions of Jews died in the ovens and so on. Uh, and so I, I thought, if I don't ever tell any of my progeny, then they won't suffer from this stigma. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's such a, a powerful, powerful image, isn't it, to, to keep these secrets from other people, even though we know that it is the truth. And you didn't want to tell anyone. How long did you keep this secret? Yeah, I didn't want to tell anybody. I'd grown up with a black stepfather who, uh, for a long time, I thought he was my real father. And then my mother sits me down at about age 14 and tells me that she had an affair during 
the time that she was separated from the, her husband with a very charismatic Jewish man who was, he was a charismatic, he was an author, he hung out with showbiz people, and uh, he was also a Jew. And so when I heard that, I just, I said, okay, I'm going to, this is going to be a secret because I may have children someday. And if I don't tell anybody, then they won't have the stigma. Hmm. And uh, growing up in an African uh, American neighborhood, there was, a, there was quite a bit at that time of anti-Jewish sentiment. So I got that message somehow, even though people didn't know I was Jewish, I looked Semitic. And, uh, and I ran into it as an undergraduate in college, even with my grandparents. Uh, so uh, there are lots of angles to this story. I was telling you well, during the break that it wasn't until I was in graduate school that uh, I finally came out <laughs> about, about having uh, about being uh, in large part Jewish and to a young uh, Jewish girl about my age. And she was so welcoming. She said, oh, that's wonderful. So glad. I knew there was something special about you. And so after that, and I was, you know, I was in, in uh, graduate school in clinical psychology, just starting, but I was starting to already somehow realizing that it would be toxic to carry the secret, mm. that ultimately it would be toxic and that I needed to, to come out and be out. So, so I'm curious. So what, what was that realization? Why would it have been toxic to keep that secret? Well, it's just psychological wisdom. You know? mm -hmm. It's something that as psychotherapists, we know. Uh, I knew it at an intuitive level. I knew it would be toxic. And uh, I, I can't give you the intellectual case for it. I'm not sure I had the intellectual case for it yet at that point. But I just knew it. Yeah. And, and sure enough, everything I learned about psychotherapy and after becoming a psychotherapist and so on, you know, it's absolutely, it's toxic to, to carry a secret. And there are lots of uh, families have, have secrets that can yeah. be very toxic. And, and you have to be strategic when you come out. Hmm. <laughs> you don't want to come out to the wrong people and get yourself beat up or fired or discriminated against because all of those options. So as we go through life, even though we've got ideals and values and so on, we also have to navigate with a certain uh, streetwise strategic sense. I'd like to go on with a story to tell you about these two. Where all of this has led. Um, so, some years later, I'm an undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania. I think I'm pretty close to graduation. And I asked my mother, I say, you know, I'd like to find my biological father. Uh, would that be offensive? Do you think that would be offensive to daddy, my stepdad, or to you or, or to him? She said, well, uh, I think it would be fine. I just don't know how I'll track him down. Uh, he was Jew He was a communist. And because of the McCarthy era, all the communist friends that we had went underground. And you can't go around asking, well, where's so-and-so? She's, she told me stories about the FBI and uh, some, some cruel things that they did. And so, so that was that. And many years go by. And um, 
And I've now started, I've gone through graduate, undergraduate, I've gone through graduate school, and now I've got my first academic job at Sonoma State University in Northern California. I've been drawn there because I hear they have a humanistic program. I didn't know much about what that meant, but the the word was right. I said, okay, this sounds like my people. And um, so here I am in that first year, and I get a letter from my mother unexpectedly, and inside her letter is another letter, and the letter is from Marjorie Guthrie, who is one of the wives of Woody Guthrie. Not so happens that I became tremendously enamored of Woody Guthrie, not knowing any of this history, but I learned to play the guitar, Woody Gut- learned to play Woody Guthrie songs. And, uh, and, and Woody Guthrie and then folk music became one of the huge influences in my life. And, most, and the folk singers I were drawn to and all in college, uh, they were Jewish, you know. They, they were mostly from New York, and they had this, this wonderful subculture. But at any rate, so here's this, a, a letter from Marjorie Guthrie, Woody Guthrie's wife. And it says, Dear Louise, that's my mother's name, Dear Louise, I'm sorry it's taken me 10 years to get around to answering your letter. It got to, it was at the bottom of a pile of correspondence. And yes, I know where Ed is, and here is his address. Whoa. So the address turns out to be in the Berkeley Hills. Now, here I am, having come from, uh, having come from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and um, to Northern California. And I have friends who live in the Berkeley Hills. It turns out I have a friend who lives just blocks away from this man who's my biological father. When I, um, so I'm going to skip over some of the really astounding synchronicities to try to make sure that so, I touch on the main So, so, so Dr. how old are you at that point where, where you I, I find out been, about I would I would have been probably about uh, thirty something, maybe thirty three, thirty four, something like that. So this had been a twenty year quest at this point. Oh yeah, find your father. And when I get this letter, I have to tell you, it released like a, a little three year old boy in me. It was like, mm. my daddy, my daddy, my <laughs> daddy. He's going to be rich, and he's going to take away all my troubles and solve all my problems. That was the feeling. And I had all kinds of fantasies about how I would reach out to him and how we would meet. But to uh, cut to the chase, uh, I, sent him a, uh, I sent him a letter, uh, kind of, uh, I am David, your son by Louise, and trotted out all my pedigree, you know, of my educational pedigree. And let him know that I'd like to meet him, but I wasn't to make any claims on him or anything. So he got back to me and suggested that we meet at a, at a restaurant, at a Russian restaurant in Berkeley, and we did. So I found out a bunch of stuff when we got together. I found out, indeed, that he, well, I need to back up, actually. I need hey. to back up. When okay. I first came to Sonoma State, there was a dean. I'd been there for a little while. And the dean called me into his office. I thought, oh, God, am I in trouble? And no, he was just, he wanted to chat me up. How are you doing here? How are things going for you? Um, 
what have you been doing? I said, well, actually, I did something very interesting last night. I saw a, a flyer that there was going to be this psychic woman down in San Francisco giving a, a, a talk. And I've never done gone to anything like that. Uh, I had heard her name, Betty Bethard. She was well-known in the Bay Area. I thought, on a lark, I'll just go and see what that's like. So I went to the Betty Bethard's thing, and uh, she sees me in the audience. She started sort of responding to people. She said, oh, you've got a green aura. Are you a teacher? Well, actually, yes. In the course of her presentation, towards the end of the presentation, she does a meditation with the whole group. And she says, you know, close your eyes and and uh, summon up an image of the highest figure that you can think of. And so I'm trying to do that. I'm thinking, uh, Jesus on the cross. No, that's that's kind of a, a brutal image. Uh, a Baba Ram Dass, oh, well, he's just another guy. And then this image, and I don't think of myself as a person who easily visualizes, but this image very clearly popped into my mind of Ho Tai. Now, Ho Tai is a Chinese god of laughter. He's uh, got the fat belly, his hands are up over his head, and uh, and, he, and he's the god of laughter. And as that image came in, I just felt, uh, A, I knew it was the right image. And it just kind of locked in, and I felt kind of flooded with joy. And as I had drove, I was, had to drive 50 miles to get back to home after that, but I was laughing and singing and laughing in the car, and I just felt this, and I felt like the message was clear. Uh, take it a little bit more lightly, take it lightly, get some fun in your life, and don't take things so seriously. So I share that back now to the dean. The dean says, so what have you been doing? I tell him about this, this talk that I went to. He said, you know, I've never been to a psychic, but I had a student whose roommate disappeared and and a psychic came into the situation and told the cops where to look. And indeed, they found the body. And I said, you know, I've never had any experience that's close to anything like that. Um, But, uh, you know, it'd be really neat to meet somebody like that who had that ability. I said, you know what? I have in my wallet, he reaches into his pocket, pulls out of his wallet. I have in my wallet the card of that psychic that my student gave me years ago. I've been walking around with this in my wallet. And I wasn't brave enough to go and check it out. But if you'll do it, I'll pay for you to see the psychic if you'll come back and tell me what what happens. Okay, this, wow. is, this is pretty extraordinary. So this I is- drive down to Marin County where the psychic lives and um, and I'm waiting in the car before I go in. And um, well, what, well, what shall I ask the psychic? What about, and I, I realized, no, I'm not going to try to trip the psychic up. There's no point in that. I'll be open and, and, and uh, I'll ask about my father. How can I find, does my real father, is he alive or dead? How could I find him? And this woman who turns out to be the sister opens the door and behind her in the foyer is the largest statue of Ho Tai wow. that I've ever seen. Love it's it. it's uh, made out of teak or something like that. I'm sure it was very expensive. It's a full life-size Ho Tai. 
And so then I go in to meet the psychic. Dr. Georgiana Sagi was her name. And um, she's sitting behind a desk. And I was going to ask her about how could I find my, my biological father? And uh, I tell her that's what I'm interested in. And she said, <laughs> she said, are you Jewish? <laughs> said, are you Jewish? I'm getting my rabbi spirit guide. And so I say, yes, my, my father was Jewish. And so basically what she says is, uh, yes, your father would be, he's alive. And he's been, he's been to Israel and he's been living for a long time, lived in a state that starts with N, and you will find him within the year. So this also branched out to, to a whole thing that she sent me off on a quest, and, uh, and I don't have time to go to, into that one. Um, so now, jump forward to, it's now l about a year later, when I get this letter from my mother, and inside is a letter from, uh, from Marjorie Guthrie that has the address of my, my real father. So I get together with him. And, um, and what I, I discover is, A, I've got a half-sister on that side of the family who uh, had, was in the same, the synchronicities here just explode everywhere, in the same issue of the Esalen Growth Center catalog that I was in. Uh, she's a dance therapist. Uh, I was doing body stuff at Esalen. I have a, a half-brother uh, who is... Uh, was a uh, licensed clinical social worker. I have an uncle, Uncle Mort, my father's brother. They had been at Sonoma State University about a year before I came out there. And how I got there, that's another huge story, loaded with synchronicity. But they'd been there for some kind of workshop. And, uh, and it later turned out that I had a master's student who was a good friend of my father. I had a colleague who longtime good friends with my father. So I'm searching for my father and he's all around me. All around you. I'm meeting these people that know him. And, uh, and, and then I discover that my sister and my cousin were taught to play guitar by Woody Guthrie. And that Woody Guthrie wrote his book, Bound for Glory, in my father's house, because my father had a radio show. Now, here I am these many years later with shrink wrap radio. I have to tell you, the linkage wasn't in my mind consciously that I was going to do what he did. It just, it happened in a very different way. Um, so the, uh, that whole set of, of synchronicities was just mind-blowing. Let's see if there's anything I've left out that I need to get in here. So, so this is all, all over that that meal that you're having with him when you finally meet him and you yeah yeah and it he comes out reveals these things yeah, and you, it comes you realize out, all these connections it comes out over some other meals and yeah. uh, you know and uh, talk with my sister <laughs> but but, what, but let me let me go back a bit yeah. what was that moment like for you when you when you see him in three dimensions when he's there in front of you. Yeah, it was great. I was I was really keen on it. 
he was wearing a Greek fisherman's cap. It was kind of, I have his body type now. I was very thin at the time. He was a portly guy with this colorful sort of Zorba the Greek hat. And, uh, and, you know, and we were chatting and getting on pretty well. And so, and then he suggested, would I like to come back to the house with him up in the Berkeley Hills and, 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 uh, and meet his wife, Sarah. And I said, well, yeah, that would be great. So we go to his, oh, and he tells me it would be good because his wife flipped out when she saw my last name on the letter that I sent him, she knew about his affair with my mother and she saw the name Van Nuys and immediately summoned up huge jealousy of, Oh my God, she's trying to strike something up with him again. I mean, we're talking, that was going back 30 years or more. So he thought it would be good to detox the situation and have her meet me. So we, we get in his car and there's a little white dog in there. And as we're getting into the car, the dog jumps out and he calls the dog and calls the dog. The dog doesn't come back. So he starts driving and, you know, let, let the dog chase us. The dog will uh, make up his mind and join us. And so I'm looking out the rear window at this dog that's trying to keep up. And I'm going to feel tearful now. I have the feeling I, this guy doesn't hang on too tightly to the things in his life. And um, so I meet his wife. She's wonderful. She accepts me. I like her much more than I like him. He's a little burnt out at this point in his life. He's, he's done a lot, known a lot of people, enjoyed some celebration, uh, had some real hard times as well. Already had four kids, right? And, uh, and so here's this guy come, you know, coming into his life. We were both at a little bit at odds about, okay, what do we do with this situation <laughs> now that we're here? Does this mean I come down every Sunday night for dinner? And I didn't do that with my, uh, with my family of origin. Uh, so it, it, that didn't feel like it was going to be right. So were you, I mean, because you just got teary, and I appreciate that, but were you the little white dog chasing the car? Yeah, yeah. But I also yeah. kind of had to let go. My wife kind of, you know, wives are good for giving you a, a, a reality check, the other yeah. view, you know, and and she's saying, you know, it's, it's, it's good that you didn't grow up with this guy. You would have been uh, uh, diminished. Uh, and I could, and I, in fact, the son that grew up with him, you could tell that he kind of was very diminished because this guy had been sort of larger than life sort of character. Uh, I end up doing a, a job swap with a professor at the University of New Hampshire. Wonderful time, whole great chapter in our lives. We fell in love with New England, um, but after we were supposed to be one year, but then after the second year, the, the department there is wanting their guy to come back to serve on committees and all. So we come back to California and um, I'm sitting in my office not too long after that. And I turn on the FM radio. There's a, a, a San Francisco public radio station, right? Uh, KPFA. 
and the radio was already tuned to that. I turn on the radio and the voice says, Ed Robin died today. And I turned the radio off. Wow. And I just, I've, that was the end of the circle. I just, it felt like that's closure. And so another amazing synchronicity there. Absolutely. So I got goosebumps, a, goosebumps hearing that. Yeah. 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 There are so many, um, was a related so, so, so what do you make of, of this? I mean, well, to me, what all of this means is um, that there is a bigger game going on, a bigger picture. That's that's how I look at synchronicities, that it's a God's hanky, if you will, lying on the ground for us to pick up and realize that, hey, there's a connectedness, connectedness going on in the universe. And um, so that's how I take it. And it's, it's given me a real uh, enduring sense of meaning uh, mm. in, in my life. And, um, and ironically, it wasn't till I heard the word podcast back in 2005. What's a podcast? I'd never heard of that, but I've been an amateur radio operator and I had a, an iPod. So I knew it couldn't transmit. What is a podcast thing? So when I looked it up, I found an article about this guy, Adam Curry, who had sort of launched the idea of podcasting. And that's how I got into podcasts. And when I was wanting to come up with a name, I thought, well, shrink wrap, we've called shrinks, mm-hmm. uh, shrink wrap, like wrapping, mm-hmm. radio, because uh, nobody knows what a podcast is. So I'll call it radio, even though it's not a radio show. And uh, so that's how that name came about. And that's how I got into podcasting. I had no idea, is there any, what I wanted to do was have an interview show that would be about many different approaches to psychology. And mm-hmm. I didn't know if anybody would be interested in that. And here you are. And here I am 16 years later, had yeah. no intention of doing it this long. Never, that wasn't part of the plan. It didn't, hadn't put it together in my mind. Well, my real father had a radio show. Didn't put it in my mind that my grandmother published a newspaper that went all over the world called Healing Hope. And that in some way, I was also kind of putting out a message of healing hope without without preaching. There was no preaching. But people were clearly getting a message in between by the, by the interviews that I was choosing and some of the commentary I had. And the message of, of healing and synchronicity so we've we've gone through this remarkable story uh, with your father, but there are more synchronicities. I've got another. Which story. ones can you share? Okay, I've great. I've got another story for you. Uh, I'm teaching at the University of New Hampshire on exchange, right? And um, just for the heck of it, I decide to take some classes, and I take a class on 
uh, computer programming, because this is back before, this is before personal computers. They haven't happened yet. But I have the sense that this is probably important. I should know something about computers. And I also decide to take a course on calculus, because I originally was accepted at the University of Pennsylvania in engineering, but I switched out early into creative writing because I, in the first class on calculus, I realized I am not prepared for this. So all these years later, I think maybe I can slay the old dragon of calculus. They can't take my PhD away from me uh, <laughs> if I fail this class. So I took this course on calculus. My head was swimming and the young people, you know, they were getting it right away. But I, if I'm not, I'm not anything if not persistent. So I would work on solving the homework problems. At any rate, I took two semesters of calculus, got an A both semesters. I did well in the computer programming class I, I took. I have a friend who also happened to be back there at the same time that I was uh, teaching at another university. And he said, David, why are you taking these classes? You should be doing things to forward your career, do stuff in psychology to forward your career. Uh, and I didn't have a good justification for it. I just felt led to do it. When I finally have to go back to California to pick up my old job, the state of California is in economic crisis. And for the first time, they're going to lay off tenured professors. And I'm a tenured professor. And the chair calls me in and says, David, um, you may need to be thinking about you know, finding other employment. At this point, I've got four young children. It leads off to a whole, to a whole new career on one part. But what happens is the creative people at the university in my department and other departments decide, well, how can we help alleviate this problem by shifting people around into other departments where they might be needed? And somebody spoke up and said, well, David's know something about computers and math. I got shifted into the math and computer science departments to teach uh, uh, introduction to computer programming and uh, introductory algebra. And I love them. <laughs> and uh, save my bacon. Yeah, isn't it amazing? These things happen. And it, now, I couldn't always... see that. I couldn't no, see that. Right. Some... I'm reluctant to say some part of me, some part of my unconscious could see around the corner, around the corner yeah. of years and distance yeah. and say, okay, this is going to be useful. This is what you need to do. Need to do. Yeah. I, I have several stories pop into my mind about synchronicity and, and not realizing at the moment that what's happening now is going to have an impact way, way, way in the future. I mean, I mean for, for me, I don't know if I've shared this on the air before, but when um, when I was deciding which residency to go to, I chose the residency, um, Institute of Living, and when I got the contract from them, and this is, this is immutable, you, you have to go once you've chosen it, it was $2,000 less than what they said they would give me. Now, I already had one kid, my wife was pregnant with another kid, I said, you know, I, I need that $2,000. And they said, no, 
you know, it's, it's $14,000 a year. That's what we're getting paid. $14,000 a year. Yeah. I started. And I, thought it was, I thought it was going to be 16 <laughs> about three months later. Carol has our son, Jason, and there's lots of complications. Eventually two weeks afterwards, we get handed a bill for $35,000 or so. Luckily Carol's okay. Jason's okay. And I said, I, I need to come up with a payment plan for this. I said, all right, tell us your income. Tell us the number in your family. I tell them that. They go away. They come back. I've done their calculation. And they say, you know what? You qualify for free care. But if you'd earn $2,000 more. And I just looked up. I said, okay. Because that was the $2,000 that I was hoping to get. But if I had gotten it, I would have stuck with this so you've you just got to believe you have to believe things happen for a reason i always say that teach that to my kids everything happens for a reason you just might not know at the moment yeah and often in retrospect if you look back yeah and you'll yeah. see this chain of of uh, events that can inform you you know this is exactly where i was supposed to be yeah i, I think it's the same with us i mean you know you offered me an opportunity to come and chat on your show, give you the opportunity to come and tell us your story. I mean, there's a lot of connection here. Yeah, lot, well, we felt that. I think we both felt that in the interview. I don't know if you yeah. invite everybody who interviews you to be on the show in turn, no, but no, I think no. we had a strong connection. Yeah. Let's talk about the two truths of the I am. So, Dr. David, you know, the I am approach is saying that everyone's doing the best they can. We're responding to four domains, your home domain, the social domain, the biological domain, and the I see, how I see myself, how I think other people see me. Because the domains interconnect, a small change can have a big effect. Dr. David, what small change can you recommend to our listeners when it comes to synchronicity? Yeah, I would recommend that people, first of all, be open to the concept that is possible in their own life and to kind of review it and see if they can begin to notice some patterns. And also would recommend that if, if you're really interested in, in that and this, kind, this level of meaning in your life, there are things that you can do that would help draw it to you, such as meditation, and such as tracking your dreams. Um, so I kept a dream journal for many, many years. And um, so I think cultivating an orientation toward the inner life, and then things start to happen. Not everybody's drawn to that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not necessarily a fit for everybody, but maybe there are listeners out there and viewers out there who have a, a small, still voice inside or who are already drawn to this sort of thing and um, uh, build it and, and it will come. Something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and it does take belief and faith. And, you know, um, I, think, I think that there's an enormous power in this. Uh, it's the connectedness of all of us. As folks have heard me say, we're, we're one group. It's called humanity. We are so connected. 
especially in this day and age. We need to recognize that. Otherwise, we will continue to destroy ourselves. We don't need to. Which gets to the second truth of the I am. Everyone's interested in what you think or feel about them through that IC domain, which has an effect on their biological domain. Because, you know, it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. Yeah. You're part of someone's home or social domain, which means you control no one. You influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Dr. David Van Nice, what kind of influence do you want to be? Well, I want to be a positive influence, and I want to be an influence for hope because we're at a place in in this world right now where we all need to have uh, to have hope and a sense of meaning. And so, my hope is that my podcast will touch people in that way, and I know that it does actually. So I I, I feel confirmed in that. Yeah. So how can people listen? How do they find you? Oh, the name of the show is Shrink Wrap Radio or the Shrink Wrap Radio Psychology Podcast. You will find it on uh, on iTunes. Unfortunately, they only have the last 50 shows. <laughs> and uh, on, on Shrink Wrap Radio, I have over uh, 700, I think I have 795 shows there. And if you want to be able to get them all, then you've got to go to my website, which is shrinkwrapradio.com. And that's spelled just S-H-R-I-N-K-R-A-P-R-A-D-I-O.com. Shrinkwrapradio.com. So you can hear the whole collection. There's a vast education there. and. Yeah. And people from all what works of life, and I, I've been um, I've been moved yeah. to uh, are very happy that so many professionals, psychotherapists, and other professors have gone there and and loved Please. what they found. Yeah. Listen to it, folks. Listen to it. Synchronicity, Doctor Dan Van Nice. Thank you so much for being on the show tonight. My pleasure, folks. We'll see you next week. Bye, Tom. Bye, Larry.